September the 9th, 2018, lecture discussion number 35 on the book of Joel. At least I hope that's right. Uh, before we get started, uh, I, I just have something to read to you. It's, uh, I'm fascinated by these kinds of things because they're almost always wrong, but this one was a little bit unique. It says, uh, young Christians are leaving the church, here's why. I happen to have a firm view on why young Christians are leaving the church. But here's what this uh, particular gentleman said, and I think it had, uh, had some value, so I'm reading it today. It's a Pew report. Uh, most young people have left and they agree with this statement. The church is no longer attracting young people. And the statements, uh, I'll give you a few of them, they say that they agree with, I don't like religious organizations. Well, that's wisdom right there. I mean, that means there's, there's hope for the young. Another one, 34% agreed with that. I don't like the religious leaders. Well, good for them again. 31% don't, don't like the really, what's wrong with the other 69%? Uh, religion is irrelevant to me, 26%. And I think that's absolutely true. The church is such a mess that anybody who looks at it from the outside and does not see that is, is part of the mess, frankly. Uh, the church is disintegrating in front of us. It is a Christless organization almost universally. Um, here's some other things they use as examples of why they're leaving the church and not believing in Christ. They're learning about evolution when they went to college. Uh, religion is the opiate of the people. That, of course, is a communist um, mantra. This is what you pay $100,000 a semester for, the Ivy League. You get this kind of Response: Rational thought makes religion go out the window. Lack of any, of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator. I just realized somewhere along the lines that I didn't really believe it. That's a, a common phrase they're getting. I'm doing a lot more learning, studying, and kind of making decisions myself rather than listening to somebody else. Those are common uh, explanations that the Pew Research people believe. Uh, and this gentleman goes on to say uh, that the, the data from this 216, 2016 study may explain why ex-Christians question a lot of religious you're suppo- teaching. You're supposed to question religious teaching. The Bible tells you to. If you're not questioning religious teaching, you're not uh, serious about what, the, what truths are there. But the issue for them is um, ex-Christians or the young often describe religious beliefs that they've considered blind or unreasonable that do not explain or prove the existence of God and they're skeptical. Uh, Ex-Christians often leave the church because they don't think anyone in the church can answer their questions. And all of that I have found to be true. The church isn't answering questions anymore. What is the church doing now? Making money, that's right. It's exactly what it's doing. It's an economic institution, and it is run by frauds and charlatans. Overwhelmingly, the, the elite pastors in this country are in it for the money, and they can't explain anything, and they don't want to explain anything because it makes it difficult to make money. And it's a mess. So those of you who are looking at the church hierarchy, the religious Christiology, if you will, or 
churchianity, whatever the phrase may be, and you find it to be in disrepair, then you have an accurate assessment. And we are in the Laodicean age, in my view, and the church is to be a mess. It is the vomit church for a reason. Okay, here we go. Rant over. September 9th, 2018, lecture discussion number 35 on the book of Joel. And then we're back, as you can tell. Hi to the Internet folks. Um, the attempt by us here in Alaska to cling in desperation for you folks outside to any and all vestiges of summer has ended now. Uh, the inevitability of the cold dark is now impossible for us to deny. And with that conceded, however, as you know, we are experiencing the best September ever up here in Alaska. It is a record September. Record high temperatures. Record high temperatures. That is, of course, a relative term. By that, I mean 64 to 69, though it's supposed to be 70 on Tuesday. Good roofing day, Tuesday. Uh, but it's 45 at night, but it's, uh, it might be 34. So what we call record high temperatures are in 30s at night and maybe 65 in the daytime. Uh, or if you will, if you're in Arizona, that's uh, freezing, bursting pipe cold. So that's what uh, they would call it. And, of course, no one can live in Arizona. As you know, it's uh, virtually uninhabitable. No one really lives there. They all fake it. Do you think you can? Are you going to Arizona? Oh, my goodness. But you're going in the wintertime, haven't you? Yeah, see, all that wisdom back there. No one lives there. I should, be, I should give the caveat. No one lives in uh, Arizona in the summer. All that's there is pure misery. You can't call it life. Anyway, I'm trying, I'm fishing for mail. Can you tell? Anyway, we are thrilled here with our hot September sunny days. Okay, when we last saw our intrepid band of cliffside explorers, that's us, wandering about in the wilderness, pretending that the reputed team leader knew where he was going, the subject at hand was grave clothes. So that's what we have been discussing because they are a terrific, well, a tremendous, astonishing, amazing mystery of Scripture, and especially uh, primarily as they pertain to Christ. So these are the grave clothes of Christ we've been discussing. The bindings are barely discussing. I just introduced it, I think, the last uh, lecture. The bindings, the bound hand and foot. Uh, That phrase becomes very significant as you study grave clothes, the meanings of the grave clothes, and how it is that uh, they connect or they fit into the prophecies of Joel, because this is a Bible study on Joel. And that, of course, takes us to the resting of God. God rests. Why does he rest? What does rest mean to God? The sign of Jonah, the three days and the three nights of Jonah. The blessing of the seventh day or the Sabbath day, the blessing of the resting of God, the resting of the ark of Noah that fits into that, the blotting of Moses, blotting out of Moses, the Lord's prayer, the lunar and solar cycles, which ultimately lead to the diverse, I'm sorry, the divisibility of time, uh, the quantum zero effect or the Zeno paradox. That's where we have been. And grave clothes fits into all of that list that I just gave you. 
And, and those, as you know, everything I just mentioned orbits the truths of consciousness. That letter I just read to you, uh, these people cannot, they're leaving the church because the church cannot explain consciousness or existence and isn't interested in doing it. But what I, that list that I gave you is a small list. There's many, many more elements to it, but they orbit the truth of consciousness and existence. And that is in contrast to the lies of Satan. The Bible, our Bible has all the information, all the answers to the mind-brain problem. Or the fact that we have a non-physical consciousness controlling a physical brain. We have existence and we know we have existence. Our Bible explains that. Kids are desperate for that. The young are. Why isn't the church teaching this? What's the matter? I think I answered that already. So anyway, that was the required synopsis because we've been gone for a couple of weeks or scenes from the previous episodes, if you will, to use the contemporary language. And when I say language, of course, I have to say what? I can't say just language. What do I have to say? If I say language, I have to say mathematics. Language and mathematics are a unit. You can, you can neglect language if you wish, and, and uh, the church does. The church never talks about the origin of language or the complexity of language or the numeracy, the mathematics of language. And at any time I talk about mathematics, I'm talking about infinity. The concept of infinity, of course, is a is a absolute immediate picture of God. And the so-called modern church has no comprehension that mathematics and language are a unit. And that has led them into foolishness, frankly, since the early 1900s. Math is the friend of the, of the scriptures. God is mathematical. It's God-given. Language and mathematics descend from God's mind. It becomes very important to know that. And I want you to always think of them as a unit. I say mathematics, you say language. I say language, you say mathematics. And when you consider them as a unit, you eliminate theological ditch diving. But I'm, I'm digressing again. I'm ranting. You can pick whether or not I'm digressing or ranting. Picking is what? If I say picking, you usually say picking and choosing. That's also a gift from God, choosing. Your ability to have a, to choose, to make decisions, to have will, to have free will. That's part of your existence and your consciousness. That's another unit or set, if, if you wish to know. You cannot discuss consciousness without will, existence, and also consciousness Together. Okay, where was I? Grave clothes. Grave clothes. We got to grave clothes because of the Lord's Prayer. The petitions of the Lord's Prayer. We had a pastor that, oh, I'm sorry, we had the Pope who decided that he wanted to get rid of um, uh, lead me not into temptation from the Lord's Prayer. Just as we've had other pastors who want to uh, divest uh, of all the Old Testament. We'll get to that in a second. But we got to grave clothes because of the Lord's Prayer. 
Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, the Lord God Almighty, the I Am, the Creator of all things, purposed, He exercised His will, His will was done to include in His crucifixion week this mysterious element of grave clothes. Something I submit that has rarely been investigated or studied, much less resolved. I've not read anybody who's even taken a run at it. And that's always mystified me. And if I could identify the cause of the negligence with regard to the enigma of the grave clothes of Christ, it would be once again, as always, the unwillingness or the inability. And I think, again, those are connected. The unwillingness leads to inability. If you are unwilling, you become unable to search the scriptures. If you will just search the scriptures, you will solve why God Put grave clothes on at his, at his entombment. John 5.39, search the scriptures and find those things that testify of him. Christ said, search the scripture. It isn't a suggestion. It's a direct order. It's a commandment. He said, search the scriptures and find me in it. What's he talking about? What scriptures are he, is he talking about? He is not talking about the New Testament. The New Testament was not written when he said that. He said, search the Old Testament and find me in it. That's an order. Do it. To repeat my rant or my digression from a few Sundays ago, the the so-called modern church, as you know I call it the vomit church of Revelation 3.16. I call it the vomit church because God calls it the vomit church. And I believe that we are in that era, that time. The vomit church has open contempt for the Old Testament. They... Most of them, many of them, depreciate, decry the Old Testament. They call it a myth. It's discredited by evolutionary philosophy, they will say. That's exactly what the young people are saying back to them. That's why I read that letter or that article. The Old Testament is a myth that has been discredited by atheism, monism. What is monism? What is evolutionary philosophy? It is the philosophy that you do not have existence and that when you die, you are extinguished. That is the philosophy. And that is what the kids today, they're leaving the church and they're adhering to this hopelessness, this, frankly, this idiocy that is coming out of our academic institutions. And our church is saying, we don't need to look at or do anything with the Old Testament. It is invalidated. And Christians are being urged to jettison the Old Testament. The latest example being this Andy Stanley, uh, who is a large megachurch pastor down in the States somewhere. He teaches that one has to be naive to believe the Genesis account. Says so openly. And then he wonders why people leave his church. And as much as I might want to, I want to repeat my earlier response to Andy and others that, uh, uh, other than, you know, listen, there's just so many of them now. They're overwhelming us. And as Bill the Cow said earlier, that's good news. Because that's telling us that we're at the end of this. It's very close. We need it to be very close. Have you seen my financial statements? I'm, I'm counting on this thing. 
I've been doing it for 30 years or better. <laughs> I have a plan B, but it isn't a very good one. I want plan A, baby. <laughs> My response is search the Old Testament for Jesus Christ. It's not optional. If you're not doing it, you're, you're disobeying a direct order from Christ himself. There's a reason he says it. And if you refuse his order, Andy, you do so at your peril. I don't care how big your church is, you're a hot mess. Nothing I can do to help you other than to warn you. It is love to warn you. And obviously, if you do not find Christ in the Old Testament, you will never accurately understand anything he says in the New Testament. That's why he says it. You want an explanation for what I'm telling you in the New Testament? You will find it in the Old Testament. So there's your answer to the mystery of why he chose grave clothing. And those who get rid of the Old Testament, they might careen into a truth or two, but the risk is great that when they are done with their pastoral career, I guess, they'll have nothing but money. And the reason they do want to to unhitch, as they say, is a popular phrase, I guess, to disconnect from the Old Testament, is to preach on the Old Testament is to cost them money. It's complicated. It takes effort. We can't do that in church today. We have to entertain and make you cry. Hopefully you fall down when you're crying. It makes it easier for the ushers to pick your wallet out. I've said that hundreds of times, but I actually believe it. Sorry if that offends you. Anyway, you might, like I said, pick up a truth or two, but in the end, you're going to have very, very little in my view. And that's a warning to you. And there are several solemn warnings to those who establish themselves as teachers of the Bible. And I suggest those who propel themselves to positions of teachers for the reason to amass great amounts of wealth ought to be panicking right now. Time is short. The point is, yea, a point, to understand why Christ included grave clothing in his crucifixion week. We need to go to the Old Testament and find grave clothing in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of challenges here. The immediate challenge is that the term grave clothes is John 11, 44. And that's, according to Strong's concordance, that's the only place it's actually mentioned as grave clothes. So you're going to have to figure out what else uh, is used as grave clothes, other phrases that mean grave clothing. So, uh, again, John 11.44 is applicational to Lazarus. That's where Lazarus is called out of the tomb by Christ in grave clothing. John 19.40 The terms applied to Christ as it concerns Christ are strips of linen. It is called strips of linen or linen cloths. John 20, verse 5. 
Um, let me find John himself becomes so important in this discussion. Let me get there really fast. Let me read that section. How am I doing? I'm doing really good. So I can take time to do this. It's the resurrection of Christ, John 20. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, John calls himself the other disciple. There's all kinds of others in the Bible. They are held in high regard. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter. That's John saying to Peter's slow. John beat him easy. And he stooped down and looking in saw the linen cloths, which are the grave clothes of Christ. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, shoved him out of the way. That's a little commentary that's probably not true. And went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying. Again, the grave clothes of Christ. And the handkerchief that says in my Bible, but it's really the face cloth. They make a face cloth. And the face cloth that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, not lying with the grave clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, John's make sure you know that he was first one more time. I'm just joking there. Went in also. There's a reason for that order of John and Peter. There's always a reason. We'll get to that next week. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Now that becomes very, very important. When John, the other disciple, saw the face cloth and the linen cloth, but he saw the folded face cloth in a place by itself, he believed, and the word means he saw and believed. That saw means looked with understanding. When Peter is said to see, when he saw the linen cloth, it, it does not have that context. The word in the Greek does not have the context of saw with understanding. It's actually solved with uncer- or saw with uncertainty, with a disbelief, not knowing really what he was seeing. John knew what he saw. And knew why it was done the way it was done. And so the obvious question, what did John believe when he saw it? As soon as he saw it, he figured it out and he believed something. What was it exactly? What did he understood? This is the Apostle John. Consider everything that he had witnessed. He saw the grave clothes lying in the tomb. He saw the face cloth folded together in a place by itself, apart from the linen grave clothes. And that causes John the Apostle to understand something. And what might that be that he understand? What is being conveyed by how these grave clothes are articulated, are placed in the tomb? Why are they there in the first place? Because that seems to not make sense unless you really understand Nicodemus. Obviously, John believes something amazing with the evidence that he saw. Ask yourself this. You're in the race with Peter and John. Are you going to come in first? Well, look at me, coming in last if I can even run 20 feet. 
I get there, I see, that's what I always do, I try to do it, put myself in the position as a kind of a witness that's hanging out with the guys. And I walk into that tomb and I see those grave clothes there and I see the folded face cloth and do I figure out what it means? Answer, probably not, me and Peter. John figured it out and believed something. And John tells us in verse 9 when he believed. I'll read it. For as yet they did not know the scripture. Oh, that's very important information, isn't it? There's the scripture. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So John tells you that he believed that Christ resurrected by looking at the grave clothes and the folded cloth. He didn't think, for example, that somebody had tampered with the body. He didn't think that somebody had, uh, you know, that somebody had accessed it before him. He saw the grave clothes and he saw the folded face cloth and he said, this is resurrected. This is resurrection. He believed that Christ resurrected himself after three days and three nights, which is the sign of Jonah. So, John 3.19, sign of Jonah is occurring here. Proof of the sign of Jonah let me put sign of Jonah over here off to the A. Proof of the sign of Jonah. Resurrection after three days and three nights. Christ raising himself from the dead. John 3, 19. John believed that was true. But he didn't know the scripture at the time he believed it. So, resurrection. John deduced from the grave clothes and the face cloth that Jesus Christ had resurrected himself. And think on that a bit. The logic progression that John the Apostle in that tomb on, on that day, he didn't yet know the scripture. So he had no understanding of the, of the prophecy. All he saw was the clothing and the face cloth. And yet he knew that that was proof of resurrection. John believed Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, resurrected. The us of Genesis 3.22 had resurrected God. This is basically that at its basic fundamental essence. This is God raising God from the dead. I ask all the time, how heavy is Christ? He's infinite God. How much power does it take to raise infinite God from the dead? Who can do it? He says he could do it himself, John 3.19. We see in Scripture, especially the uh, New Testament, that God is all the Godhead, the triunity of God, is raising himself. As a quick aside, the Scripture is thought to be uh, this Scripture. The Scripture is thought by most theologians, it's not definitive, to be Psalms 16.10. That's why I brought it up uh, uh, few weeks ago, or at least maybe even, yeah, I don't know what lecture it was, but I'll have to look for it for you to find out. 1610 says, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo corruption. Remember that from a few weeks ago? 
Psalm 1610 is the fundamental of the atonement of Christ. So if you wish to recognize it as that, you would be doing wisely. It is the, the fundamental. The 1610s of Psalm says it is impossible for the body of Christ to encounter or sustain any decay or corruption. It's impossible. And God does not allow something that makes it impossible. Does that make sense? Psalm 1610 is to be in the midst, the center of all discussions on the entombment of Christ, or if you wish, the dead body of Christ. Anyway, John did not yet know this scripture. He did not know that this was the scripture that he refers to. But John nonetheless knew, saw with understanding that Christ was resurrected. Again, how did he do that? He looked at some clothes and a cloth, said, oh, this is resurrection. Didn't think the body was stolen by grave robbers. Said, no, resurrection. How'd he do that? Believed. How complex is his thinking? What is the anatomy of his reasonings, the steps? How did he know? And clearly the grave clothes were not normal, were they? How many grave clothes, how many dead bodies has John seen? Yeah, that time of humanity... What's the death rate? Just take the last century. I tell the story, and Susie is here so she can correct me, but um, my grandfather had his first two wives, and I think three of his children were dead before he was 26. My, My grandmother died in childbirth. So did the child. So far am I right, Susie? Yeah. Susie is the family genealogist. That's what death was like in the 19, oh, I think that was 1910 in this country. What was it like in the the year 29 A.D. to 35 A.D. in Israel? I mean, the death was incredible. We have no, most of it, and it's not the case with me, but People that see death in this country right now are particularly in the medical field or the mortuary industry, if you wish to call it that, service, police officers, military, they see death, Um, animal control. I've talked to people that euthanize dogs, cats. It's a very difficult thing to do. Slaughterhouses. They see death. Most of us, maybe we see a little bit of death. That changes as we get a little older. I'm supposed to go to my 50th high school reunion here pretty soon. I'm figuring there'll be four or five of us. I know that class better than I wish. Point is, is that how much death had John seen? John had seen lots of death, hundreds of dead people, hundreds of funerals, hundreds of people buried in grave clothing. And he had seen face cloth after face cloth. So there's something that he, that about the grave clothes of Christ that are not usual. They are unusual. They are amazing. They're astonishing to him. And he knew immediately that there was something wrong with it. 
and wrong with it in the sense it didn't fit. He saw Lazarus come out of the tomb just a few months earlier, weeks, whatever. And this is not like Lazarus. Not like anything that John had ever seen. These grave clothes were different. They're lying there, but they're different. So the image that you have that you might have learned from Hollywood can't be true because that would not make John believe anything. And then that folded face cloth. I keep, I have all kinds of strange ideas. If you've come to know, I think, how did God fold the face cloth? I mean, God is going to fold the face cloth. I immediately, I spent some time in Hawaii pretending to go to school, as you know. And I got familiar with origami. And uh, they can do astonishing things with a piece of paper. Human beings are amazingly creative. I just want to know, what did God do with his face cloth that blew John away? Because he did something. And we should be able to figure it out. How do we figure it out? Old Testament. We look for stuff he folds. God took the time, this is God, to fold this face cloth and to do something with these grave clothes. So let's continue now. I want you to just think about those kinds of things. Okay, where in Scripture, these are items of death. The face cloth and the grave clothes are items of death. So let's go to the Old Testament. Where is the first place that we see grave clothing in the Old Testament? And you all yell out because I have inundated you and I've tried to make you respond the same way over and over and over again so I can eventually trap you. But you all yell out, yes. Genesis 3 is absolutely correct. You can't get away from Genesis 3. Do you notice that? You can't. Genesis 3. And if the church knew that, they wouldn't be losing young people because Genesis 3 starts to teach you how to explain existence. How to explain that you're not going to cease to exist. You cannot cease to exist when you die. Physical death is not the end of anything. It's a temporary state. The body dead. You cannot, your mind cannot be extinguished. All it needs is an energy source. Light. Well, who says he's light? Anyway, where was I? Genesis 3. All things eventually all find themselves connecting to Genesis 3. You've heard me say that many times. In this case, it's Genesis 3, 7. The fig leaf coverings of Adam and the woman are grave clothes. I should insert here that these coverings carry all kinds of meanings. They're very complex. Why did he pick figs? You would not have picked figs. Have you seen fig leaves? You would have picked ferns. You'd have picked something. But he picks figs. You think he did it because, wow, there's a whole bunch of fig leaves here. I think I'll use that. What did, it, what did the fig leaves mean to Adam? What does the fig tree mean to Christ? Of all things in the world that he's ever condemned in Scripture, it is a fig tree. Cursed it. So clearly that's related. Adam knew what the fig leaves meant. That's why he picked them. He knew they were grave clothes. They refer to the tree of death. And therefore, it becomes a confession. The fig tree leaves become a testimony. The word, the Hebrew tells you that they're girded. 
coverings, implying that at least the undeceived Adam, now I, I'm convinced also that he explains this to Eve, and she is a partner in this decision process that they made. He knew that he was contaminated. He knew as the federal head that he had now, he was going to spread death into all his progeny. And so what are they doing? They are girding themselves. I think it is evidence that Adam was not willing to multiply. He was going to wait for God. Because God came to him. Christ came to him and walked with him in the garden. Christ's garden. He owns it. Adam knows that. And that, by the way, oh. That explains why he names this woman who fell into sin first and was deceived, why he names her the mother of all living, Eve, why he renames her. You can put the fig leaf covering, the girding of it, the covering of the fig leaves um, in alongside the first, the mother of all living. And as well, it explains why Adam eventually goes forward and obeys the commandment to multiply. He is disobeying, if you will, the commandment to multiply when he has this girded covering on him. And she has one likewise. They're not going to multiply. Eventually they do, as you know. So what causes the change between the girded clothing and the multiplying aspect of Adam and Eve? He's waiting for God to solve the situation that he was not deceived in. For today, let's put these three together. I have Adam in death clothes. I have Lazarus in death clothes. And I have Christ, God, in the flesh, in grave clothes. So we start to begin to find the puzzle and at least identify the pieces. And um, that, if I, once I say that, Adam, Lazarus, and Christ have death clothes on, that immediately causes the inverse. Does it not? Of course it does. If there are death garments, then it assumes there is what? Life garments. Uh, absolutely there are life garments. Anybody have life garments? You don't have life garments, not yet. Who had life garments? Adam and Eve had life garments. What happened to their life garments? What did their life garments look like? Adam and Eve lost their life garments with sin, I submit. And Adam constructed death garments, which God removed and replaced them with what kind of garments? Blood garments. So we have life garments, death garments, blood garments. And you can make the case, and I think it is applicable or appropriate to do so, that the blood garments become life garments. Matthew 22. Let's go and take a look at that really fast. How am I doing? Doing good. When I say good, that's a relative term. How much of this do I want to read? 
Jesus, this is the parable of the marriage feast. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, sent out to his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. There's the Bible telling you that you have will. You can reject the order of God to come to the marriage feast. Again, he sent out other servants saying, uh, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my queen, or my, I'm sorry, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready, come to the wedding. So they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But the king heard about it, he was furious, he sent out his armies and destroyed the murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy, not willing. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, who's telling this parable? Let's go back there. God is. Jesus Christ. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Wow, just like Lazarus. We go to read Lazarus. Lazarus comes out of the grave bound hand and foot. Now we've got it again. Do you think there's a relationship? Duh. There's a relationship. Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The king says to the man who does not have the right garment, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. What do you suppose the man was bound in? Bound in linen grave clothes. Take a guess. Everyone who guessed death garment grave clothes, you get to go to the head of the buffet line. All of you. At the same time. I see the signal. Thank you. Why did this man who Christ calls friend, he calls him friend. If you want to find out Christ's friend, let me repeat that. Uh, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Wedding garment, obviously, is a life garment. How did you come before me without a life garment? Here's a better question. Why did you come before him without a wedding Why does he call him friend? Where am I going to solve friend? The king obviously saw this man's attempt to come before him in death clothes as an act of great evil and wickedness, and the man was summarily, summarily condemned. The king in this parable obviously is representative of Jesus Christ. See Matthew eleven twenty eight. That's where it says, Fear me, I am the one who can send body and soul to destruction into outer darkness. That's what Christ says. He's the king. So who's this man? If the king represents Christ, who does the man represent? Who else is called friend by Christ? Huh? Oh, you were absolutely right. That's Matthew 26:50 in Gethsemane. Calls Judas friend. 
For today, notice that the man is bound hand and foot in grave clothes, which then, as I said, must be compared to Lazarus, who is also bound hand and foot in grave clothes. So I've got two bound hand and foot in grave clothes. I might need to know what is going on with the two. Are they a pair or are they a contrast? Lazarus came out of the tomb. What made him come out of the tomb? There's a great illustration that's been around for a thousand years or better, maybe two thousand years. Christ's voice calls him out and he is in a graveyard and he is groaning over the ignorance of the Jewish people as to who he is. The fact that he is the resurrection and the light and the life and the light of life and his, the very people that are with him, Mary, Martha, they're not sure who Christ is. I'll prove that in the weeks to come. He calls him, the voice of God calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And the word of God is Christ. He's called the word of God. He is the voice of God. And Lazarus comes out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. How's his face look? Wrapped in a face cloth. And Christ commanded, again, that Lazarus be unwrapped. Now, like I said, that famous story is is that Christ is groaning over the ignorance, over the unbelief of the people that are there, but is also uh, has to only call out Lazarus and save him. Because he could have emptied the whole mortuary, I'm sorry, the whole cemetery. Every single one comes out. But he says specifically Lazarus. Why Lazarus? How many Lazaruses are there? Lazari, I guess. Be the plural. How many Lazari do we have to deal with when we talk about Lazarus? Christ commanded that Lazarus be unwrapped and set loose from the bindings. He's bound hand and foot. So what do we got now? The voice of God, the word of God, Jesus Christ, is the means, the only means, to remove the bindings of death. He's telling you that. He's telling us that. So the command, the order to come out is given by the word of God. And Adam, Lazarus, and Christ, again, are all wearing grave clothes. And Lazarus's grave, grave clothes were tightly wrapped. He did not escape from them. This isn't a magic trick. You can't get out of the grave clothes unless the voice of God pulls you out of it. And again, grave clothes are representative. They're a symbol for something. So I have these spices and linens. What is the purpose of the spices? Do you know? Why did they put spices on them? Why didn't they just wrap them? But they didn't. There's a gummy resin, but they also had this fragrance to it. What were they doing with the fragrance? You've read the story. Trying to mitigate the smell. But the spices and the linens did not contain the stench of death. The women said to me, Christ, as he's opening the tomb of, asking for the tomb of Lazarus to be opened, he could have moved the rock. He didn't move the rock. He could have brought him through the grave clothes. He didn't do it. He made them unwrap him. He didn't take the face cloth off. He didn't fold the face cloth of Lazarus. He just brought him out. How did he do that? He couldn't walk. He's bound hand and foot. So, 
he, the women say to him, don't move the rock. Why? Remember? Because it smells. Been dead four days and it smells. So how good a job did the grave clothes wrappers do? How much uh, myrrh and aloe, how much of it uh, did they need? Obviously couldn't do it. The, the, uh, the stench of death prevails over the human constructed coverings. This is an opportune time to add into this. Revelation 6. All these pieces together just to figure out this one great mystery. Are you surprised? No. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Then when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had held. Your soul does not end on death. You go, those of us who are saved, to be with the Lord. I saw under the altar the souls of those. He could see the souls. John the Apostle can. Been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice. The souls can make noise. They can be seen and they can make noise. Now, they're not here on earth. There is a chasm, a gap between the living and the non-living with regard to physical bodies. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They have a memory of what happened to them. Now, how high-functioning is the soul, is the mind, is the spirit? It's very high-functioning. Then a white robe was given to each of them. Aha! And it was said to them that they should rest a little while. Time to rest? What day do you think he told them this? And wait... Rest and wait. Isn't that interesting? I think it's interesting. But then I'm interested in lots of weird stuff, especially the Sabbath. And they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they are was completed. A white covering, a white garment is given to those slain for their faith in Christ during the tribulation, and they should rest a little while longer and wait. Wait is, uh, rest and, and is, implies waiting. Waiting for the both, both fellow servants and the brethren. They're waiting and resting. What's that mean? There's a stoppage. We have a stoppage time for the one soccer player in the congregation. That's how many people in America play soccer. One, the rest come from foreign countries where they don't know how to use their hands. Don't know where that all originated, but it's a fascinating problem. Many times I have suggested that Adam had an original covering. I inferred it earlier today. His fig leaves or his fig leaf covering was a replacement covering. God did what with the fig leaf covering? The replacement covering of Adam. And that's why I think that it testifies of something. Adam isn't an idiot. He's an incredible genius. He is faithful. He is undeceived. He is a lover of God. He's a man of tremendous um, uh, understanding of the truths of God. And he puts on a fig leaf covering. He thought it through. 
He knew, his covering, I submit, was missing. It was gone. And God removes the fig leaf replacement, so he replaces the replacement. Does that make sense? And he does it with a blood garment of innocent animals that he constructs. It's called the mantle of Adam or the man, and the mantle of Eve. You can trace those mantles, those coverings. What do you think ever happened to those coverings? They wear out? Or where are they? Hmm? Yeah, well, they ended up in Jericho, didn't they? How'd they get there? This takes you back to this, you know, the murder of Nimrod by Esau and explains why the, the, the soup. A very complicated story, as you should expect. Back to where I was. I submit that the fact that God replaced the replacement with a broad garment is, indicates God's approval of some degree to what Adam had done. He approved of Adam's grave clothing. And again, compared to Matthew 22:11, that guy came in his own garment. I believe Adam, as expected, was thoughtful and wise and covered himself as an admission of guilt, a confession of his condition. Again, Adam is not deceived and God provides a solution that isn't bind him hand and foot and throw him into the utter darkness. He doesn't do that with Adam. So there is a implication of approval of some level, not getting carried away. And then God provides a solution, which ultimately is his, himself, his blood. And Adam becomes this incredible type of Christ, Romans 5. A great honoring. Understand that Romans 5 honors Adam amazingly. So you have to have a position that, 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 uh, that expects, I'm sorry, that incorporates that. Adam is undeceived. He's a type of Christ and he's covered by God in blood. How's he doing? He's doing really good. That's a tremendous honoring of Adam by God. So why has something to do, in my view, with the fig leaves, the grave clothes? And those three characteristics, undeceived type of Christ covered by God in blood, you have to, you have to reconcile them with any conclusion that you have as to Adam, and especially evaluate his words and what he, in his actions under that umbrella. It's amazing. Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, willfully chose to be wrapped in grave clothes by Nicodemus and Joseph. John 19. Got to go fast now. <sighs> Where am I? After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus. This is a disciple of Jesus. But secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Why does Joseph want the body? Why? You can do this. Why does he want the body? He wants to put the grave clothes on it. Why does he want to do that? Because that doesn't seem to make any sense because of the fundamental. But Joseph wants the body. Who's with him? Take away the and Pilate gave him permission, so he took, he came and took the body of Jesus and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, "You, uh, Nicodemus says, are you the Messiah?" And the answer is yes. Read it again. I'm the one who descends and ascends. Proverbs thirty. Nicodemus knew Proverbs thirty. And Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Why is he doing this? 
Because the fundamental seems to be in conflict with that. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen and spices, as is the custom of the Jews to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Of course, there's a garden. And the garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had been yet laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jewish preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Okay? Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they bring this mere aloe, aloe mixture, strips of linen. He's the teacher of Israel. The teacher of Israel is here. How much did he know? And they're given the assignment to put grave clothes on the Holy One of Psalm 1610. How do they know to do this? Who told them to do it? Is it arbitrary? No. Somebody told them to take the body, put the grave clothes on it. Who do you suppose did that? Really, only one choice. Did Nicodemus know that Jesus was the holy thing of Luke 135 and Psalm 1610? Yes, he did. Keep in mind, who's called the evil thing in Scripture? I have a holy thing, I'm going to have an evil thing. Who's called the evil thing? Christ calls someone the evil thing. Why is he called the holy thing in Luke 135? Because they didn't know how to describe what he is. What do you call him? The only explanation, we have a holy one or a holy thing. There's an evil thing, John 17, 15. Look it up. Christ identifies it. Nicodemus and Joseph knew that they were putting grave clothes on the holy thing, the holy one. And therefore, they had to know why they're doing it. And they must have figured out that the first Adam and the last Adam um, had this connection. They had to go back to the first Adam. And they would have to know the first Adam had grave clothes. And the last Adam also had to have grave clothes. And it's not a contrast, but it's a fulfillment of the type. Keep in mind... This is a body that it is impossible for it to decay. So why am I putting grave clothes on a body that is impossible for it to, to decay? And Adam is this portrait. It's a dim picture. And Christ is the revealed uh, purpose of the dim picture that is the type that is Adam. So it's not a contrast. So what is the type of Adam with respect to his fig leaves and his blood garment? In any event, here is Nicodemus and Joseph wrapping up. The Psalm 1610, holy one, holy thing. Knowing it makes no sense to us. Makes sense to them. Because they knew what it was. Or why. Putting a fragrant linen strip covering on a body that can't decay. They're wrapping an uncorruptible body. And it doesn't seem to make sense, which is why it makes sense. Which is why it's so incredible. The fact that it doesn't make sense, that's a great clue to the solution. Notice the women. What were they doing? They were making their own burial spices, right? Did they know why? No. The women were clueless. Absolutely, completely had no idea what was going on. Why were the women making burial spices? Because they thought the body was going to decay and stink, right? Women are always trying to cover up. Gosh, I'm just having way too much fun here today. Where's the exit? Oh, I'm...
Nicodemus and Joseph knew better. They knew that the body was not going to decay, and that's why they're putting the burial clothes on it. The women thought otherwise. They thought that Christ would have the stench of death and that the wrappings were essential. Nicodemus knows that the wrappings are mysterious, irrelative at first glance to the unlearned or the unknowing, which is pretty much all of us. The linens are included because of Genesis 3 and Psalm 16.10. The women didn't know that. The apostles didn't know that. Nicodemus knows it, and by extension, Joseph of Arimathea knows it. Joseph is included in all four Gospels. He's in all four Gospels, but only with regard to Christ's burial. It's the only place he comes. The sign of Jonah. Because this is Joseph's assignment. Psalm 16.10 is his assignment. Get Christ's perfect sinless body wrapped and place it in a tomb in the garden. Who owns the garden? Put the gardener, John 19.15, in the garden with grave clothes on. That's my assignment. And obviously there's much more to discuss here. But we're out of time, aren't we, Terry? But a couple of things. The grave clothes of Christ were not unwrapped. They were intact. So think of them as a plaster cast, if you wish. It's empty, but it's a perfect plaster cast, unwrapped. The face cloth was removed and folded in a way that stunned the Apostle John. The Apostle John was stunned. And he figured it out as soon as he saw both of those in different places. He went, ah. Resurrection. The only possible thing this can be is resurrection. There's no other explanation. And lastly, Jesus is God. You know that. Death cannot be imposed on Jesus. He has to will it. And his will must be done. Next week, I gave you all the pieces. You have it all. Be like John the Apostle.